nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with Kumar Sundaram. India's anti-nuclear Gandhi, as he concludes a successful two-week trip to Japan to warn that country about a planned nuclear pact between Japan and India, and exactly why that is not a good idea. Kumar provides a truly global view of how the nuclear industry intersects its greed for expansion with the national policies of at least six nations in this stunning analysis. And we revisit an interview about a program that allows Fukushima children and their families homestays outside their homes to escape the radiation, if only for a little while. We'll talk with Vicky Nelson and Fukushima resident Tokiko Noguchi about Fukushima Friends Hawaii Ministries outreach that provides time, housing, and activities in Hawaii. Today is Tuesday, November twenty-four, twenty fifteen. Kumar Sundaram has been featured often on Nuclear Hot Seat. He is a true firebrand of an international activist in India's fight against nuclear technology in all of its forms. Kumar is a research consultant with the Coalition for Nuclear Disarmament and Peace, known as CNDP. Right now, he's in the middle of a two and a half week trip to Japan. Where he has been speaking to groups as large as ten thousand, as he gathers support against the planned India-Japan nuclear agreement, he joined us via Skype from Hiroshima last Sunday, November twenty-second, during a break from the World Nuclear Victims Forum. Kumar Sundaram, thank you so much for taking the time to be back with us here on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Rebe. I'm always glad to be on Hot Seat. It's one of the best platforms where we have such meaningful discussions and updates. So, thank you so much. Start out by telling people where you are and what you have been doing specifically today. Today, I am in Hiroshima. It's a very pleasant morning. I am here for last couple of days in Hiroshima. We have. the world nuclear victims forum which has been organized by a number of civil society groups from all over the world which have come together from november 21st to 23rd this three day event has actually brought together nuclear victims from all over the world from communities living near uranium mines in mexico india australia kazakhstan other places from people living near nuclear test sites in places like nevada senipalatinsk and southern australia 
two people who uh, have been living near nuclear reactor sites from all over the world and also nuclear workers people and uh, citizen groups from fukushima are here uh, similarly the civilian groups from chernobyl are also represented here and of course it is hiroshima so we have a large number of old hiroshima victims who have made their presentation made their testimonies have they been really moving so the effort is aimed at bringing the experience of the victims together and to come out with a global charter on the entire nuclear fuel cycle which cannot coexist with humanity so there are problem associated unacceptable problems associated with the entire nuclear fuel cycle and the effort is first of its kind to highlight those uh, victimizations this is one of the events that i am attending this week How long have you been in Japan on this trip and what are some of the other activities you've been involved in? Libya I'm here for uh, last 10 days and I'm going to be here for another week. The entire trip has been focused on mobilizing support for our campaign in India against the India Japan nuclear agreement because the Japanese prime minister Mr Shinzo Abe would be visiting India very soon that is on December 12th and 13th so I am here to get people's support solidarity for our campaign against the proposed agreement I am pleased to inform you that wherever I went whichever event I attended I got massive support some of these events were organized by our friends in solidarity and the protest in tokyo the huge rally on 19th evening which was essentially meant to oppose the militarized moves of uh, mr shinzo abe there i was amazed to receive such warm welcome and uh, i was given time to speak in the list of the main uh, speakers there and uh, i spoke about the increasing military ties between india and japan the nuclear ties between india and japan which would imperil people in india the most vulnerable sections in india i spoke about that and it was very well received and next day on friday also there was a, a rally in front of the parliament this uh, rally happens every friday as you know it has been happening since fukushima and i have spoken at platform earlier as well so there as well i spoke in the evening in front of the japanese parliament it was very well received I also used my time uh, during my stay in Tokyo to meet some of the lawmakers some civil society groups I uh, spoke to some friends in media I am trying to raise awareness about the dangers of the India Japan nuclear agreement after Hiroshima I will be going to Osaka where I'll again be speaking in a big event focused on the India Japan nuclear agreement and again I'll be back in Tokyo before I leave for India and uh, in Tokyo I'll be speaking at a seminar organized by the Japan Citizens Nuclear Information Center CN I see which is a major japanese think tank on uh, nuclear issues so i am going to all these events to raise awareness and solicit people's solidarity for our campaign against the india japan nuclear agreement and i must tell you that the response have been, has been overwhelming people here in japan after fukushima they are not only opposed to reactors domestically but they are strongly opposed to nuclear exports as well So I'm getting good support here.
And I want to point out that at least one of those times that you spoke, it was to an audience of 10,000 people at the rally. So you are having quite a bit of reach and quite a bit of impact. Explain to the listeners the nature of the India-Japan nuclear agreement. This agreement is slightly more than a bilateral agreement. At least immediately, none of the Japanese companies are actually going to build reactors in India, but still Japan, Japanese government and Japanese companies are so bent on having a nuclear deal with India. And of course, the same is true for the Indian side, official side as well. It's slightly more than a bilateral agreement because it was actually fast-tracked the American and French reactor projects in India. U.S. is building four reactors each at two places. One is Mithivedi in eastern India and another is on the western coast, a place called Kovada, where GE is building four reactors and Westinghouse is building four reactors at the first place. At a place called Jaitapur in western India, uh, in a state called Maharashtra, French company Areva is building six reactors. This is going to be a bizarre, dangerous, world's largest nuclear power park with a capacity of 9,900 megawatts. So it's a complete insanity, but they're going ahead with it. So these are six plus four plus four at least 14 reactors which would be immediately fast-tracked because some of the very crucial components in these reactor designs are manufactured by Japanese companies. So both the US government and the French government have been pressuring Japan to culminate this agreement with India as soon as possible so that their projects in India can actually take off on ground. India had an agreement with the US for these reactors in 2008. Similarly with France, the agreement with Areva was finalized in 2008, September 2008. But still on the ground, these reactors have not moved precisely because India does not have an agreement with Japan. What has also happened in uh, these years is that the American companies, GE and Westinghouse, they have become Japanese-owned companies. So GE is now GE Hitachi and Westinghouse is now Westinghouse Toshiba. So for this reason also, the American side wants India and Japan to have an agreement so that their reactor projects can go on in India smoothly. This agreement, so essentially it's not only for Japanese imports, it's for American and French imports. It has dangerous implications, both national and international. I'll uh, speak about that very briefly. The international implications, the first one is that it's a very dangerous and wrong precedent for nuclear disarmament. Because India is a country which conducted nuclear tests in 1998 and 1974 without signing the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, the CTBT, or the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, NPT, it should be a country which is discouraged. It was a country, in fact, which was denied any international commerce. There was a practical embargo on India. Nobody supplied it any nuclear technology because India is a country which effectively cheated the world community by using the material and technology that it got in 1950s and 60s in the name of peaceful use of nuclear technology to actually manufacture weapons. So in a world where we are dealing with potential proliferators, where we are dealing with cases like Iran and other countries where it is anticipated that they will use their civilian technology to make weapons and the world should do something about it. Here is an example. 
India, which conducted nuclear tests precisely by using the technology that it got for peaceful purposes, is being rewarded. It's being rewarded because it fits in the U.S. diplomatic imperatives. The America is interested in using Asia geopolitically as a counterweight against China. That's one. India has a huge consumer market for all the Western and American big corporations. Uh, so there is a big profit here. So India has been able to leverage its diplomatic and geopolitical location as well as the sheer big population and market to effectively undermine the global disarmament and non-proliferation regime, whereby in place of facing sanctions, in place of being restricted, India is being rewarded even after conducting nuclear tests and everybody is coming to India and giving it nuclear technology. Of course, they have their own benefits as well. So one implication is that it's creating a wrong example. Any new country which thinks of conducting nuclear tests tomorrow, it will see India as an example where you can conduct nuclear tests and still be accommodated in the international system, rewarded rather than uh, being punished for it. So that's one major, major implication. The other implication is on the nuclear energy side, where you would see that globally there is a constant decline, particularly after Fukushima, in the financial health of the nuclear uh, industry. So Arriva is in a big trouble. All these big nuclear corporations have been facing a terminal crisis, which started uh, slightly before Fukushima, uh, and Fukushima has only exacerbated. A lot of countries have actually effectively taken policy shifts away from nuclear towards renewable and other uh, alternative and sustainable energy sources. So there is a constant decline in the uh, global nuclear lobby's fortunes. The 2015 World Nuclear Industry Status Report highlights it uh, very clearly that this is a terminal crisis for the global nuclear industry. And... India, for them, is a new attractive market. It's a very, very important market because here they can rehabilitate themselves, hoping that they will bounce back again globally. So if we are concerned about stopping nuclear energy globally, we should be concerned because they are getting kind of rehabilitation here. Precisely because, precisely because India is a country where the government is ready to subsidize the nuclear power plants. It's ready to give them a nuclear liability free, almost nuclear liability free playing field. The government here is ready to repress its own people because the elite form the government and the ruling class. And they don't think of poor as their countrymen. So they can repress villagers, the most vulnerable fisher folk, farmers, women, children in those areas to set up these nuclear power plants. India is also a country which has ironically diluted its safety standards after Fukushima. And uh, in setting up these new power plants, it has completely disregarded the existing very loose environmental norms and environmental impact assessment clearance procedures. So India is doing everything to accommodate the international nuclear lobby when it is in its terminal crisis. So internationally, this deal would give a new lease of life to the nuclear lobbies, which are now in crisis. So I think internationally, this has an uh, implication on the nuclear energy side as well. Coming to the implications nationally, it has very, very dangerous implications. As I said, the deal will fast track at least 16 reactor projects immediately, okay. which would mean disaster in India. 
there are broadly three set of issues associated with the nuclear expansion in india one is most immediate which is the loss of livelihood of the local people these people are in tens of thousands india is a very densely populated country most of these people are farmers fisher folk and they depend on their traditional livelihood traditional skills and occupations and for this project thousands of hectares of land is being cleared these people are being driven out forcibly from their habitats and without any adequate compensation in indian structure you know that in a typical indian village only a handful of people actually own the land and only those people get compensation if the village is being evicted uh, the other people who survive by providing labor on those farms or providing services to the villagers do not get any compensation so the larger number of people in the villages which are being evicted will not get any compensation these are people who then go to the cities and become uh, daily wage laborers in most inhuman conditions so these are people who are living who are farming who are fishing they are there happily they have this lifestyle for centuries and they are being forced to leave their livelihoods so that's one set of immediate problem which is associated with a nuclear energy expansion in india the other set of problem is of course safety which is a big issue nuclear in general is inherently unsafe fukushima has clearly shown that nuclear safety is an oxymoron it's a myth because the nuclear safety is a concept where you have to constantly chase the new developments and you have to make sure that you don't fail even once because the consequences are totally unacceptable in india nuclear energy becomes a little more unsafe because in india you have you no know, regulatory practices which are totally unaccountable and non transparent the entire nuclear industry in india comes directly under the government under the prime minister and has never been open it has never put in public uh, its safety reports the reactor performance report site selection reports as you saw in kudankulam tens of thousands of people protested in place called kudankulam on the southernmost tip of india where uh, russia has built two nuclear power plants it is as plans for building four more these people the villagers were denied their basic human rights and basic citizens right to access the information in 2012 in 2013 people all over the world saw those pictures when the police brutally harassed and killed the protesters in kudankulam tens of thousands of people were chased towards the sea when they were protesting two three people were immediately killed several hundred people including women were jailed for weeks in kudankulam even now thousands of people in kudankulam face serious but fabricated police charges called as serious as sedition and war against indian state so in india the entire nuclear expansion becomes much more unsafe and much more complicated because the government is so corrupt it's totally unaccountable and it's totally non transparent in india it also becomes a problem because ultimately these supplies and these reactors mean that these also give a boost to india's nuclear weapons capacity so for instance if india is open now to import uranium from australia and australia says the uranium that it is supplying comes under the iaea safeguards and it will not be used for nuclear weapons purposes 
But what also happens is then India uses these important uh, supplies of uranium for its civilian reactors and the domestic reserves of Indian uranium become totally free now to be used entirely for nuclear weapons purposes. So these nuclear deals with India, which Canada has entered into and Australia has entered into US and France, has also given a boost to its nuclear weapons capacity which has also meant Pakistan has protested all these deals and uh, you would see reports that Pakistan also is now increasing its nuclear arsenal including you know, introduction of tactical nuclear weapons in its nuclear arsenal. So this deal has severe military implications for this entire South Asia where we have a renewed uh, nuclear and conventional arms race. Thirdly, for the democracy of India, the movements in Kudankulam, the movement in Jaitapur have been really strong and larger democratic sections, civilians have come together, expressed their solidarity, stood together with this movement, including me who is in Delhi working with this platform called CNDP, Coalition for Nuclear Disarmament and Peace, which is a coalition of all the grassroots anti-nuclear protest and peace movements in India. It's a democratic question in India because our movements have been facing brutal repressions. Our platform CNDP has been called in government's intelligence report. It has been called anti-national and our people are being targeted. The bank accounts of other NGOs which host us, support us sometimes are being frozen. So there is a clear assault from the government side on the Indian democracy. So it's a very deep democratic question for uh, Indian citizens as well. So these are the wide-ranging implications which the nuclear agreement with Japan would have if it gets through. And uh, it's the last nation state on the earth with which India does not have an agreement. It has agreement now with almost all other countries. But Japanese agreement is very, very crucial because as I mentioned earlier, it will actually support all other agreements because Japanese companies manufacture some of the most crucial equipments in the uh, reactor designs. So given this extensive set of problems that are represented by the entire nuclear arena in India, and given that you have just been in Japan and are continuing to be there before you return to India, what kind of cooperation are you expecting between the activists between the countries? And what kind of protests, if you can speak about them, are planned for when Shinzo Abe, Prime Minister Abe, comes to India? Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe would visit India on 12th and 13th December. And finalizing the India-Japan nuclear agreement is uh, on the top of his agenda. And of course, along with this uh, civilian nuclear agreement, there are also uh, very dangerous and objectionable military agreements that the two countries have signed. Uh, there's a very strong military side to the entire new framework which India and Japan have adopted for their bilateral relationships. There is increasing India-Japan joint naval exercise in the Indian Ocean, which is, of course, happening at America's behest to counter China. As you know that there is very strong protest for last couple of years in Japan because Shinzo Abe has tried to dilute the pacifist traditions of Japan, at least after the World War, Japan adopted a policy of A, not having an active army, 
B, not participating in wars on foreign land. C, not exporting arms to any country. Shinzo Abe has single-handedly, using his brute majority, has diluted these three stances. And when he diluted the nuclear export policy earlier this year, India is going to be the first recipient of the Japanese weapons export. So India would be buying the Shin Meiwa US-2 amphibian warfighter plane from Japan. So there is a very dangerous military angle to the India-Japan agreement as well. So this entire uh, relationship between India and Japan is moving in a very militarist and nuclear framework. Given that you've been in touch with so many activists and so many groups in Japan at this point, and that you're going to be coming back to India before Shinzo Abe's visit, what do you envision as the resistance, as the protest, as the public awareness that you can bring to the discussion in your own country? Here in Japan, I met a bunch of people. I met people in the think tanks. I met civil society activists. I met grassroots activists. I met individuals who have been protesting for the last four years after Fukushima. So there is a strong solidarity and support for our campaign against the India-Japan agreements for the internal reasons of Japan, because people in Japan as such are so much angry with Shinzo Abe for his militarist and pro-nuclear policies. They have included the agenda of India-Japan nuclear agreement in all their protests. So even if I am not here and you go to the Friday protest, which happens every Friday, Uh, in front of the parliament, they have slogans against India-Japan nuclear agreement. And I was really pleased to hear those slogans. It's one of the things which have been included after I came here twice, thrice in recent couple of years. So coming to the agreement and Shinzo Abe's visit, there's a big protest planned in Tokyo on December 8th. Other civilian groups in Osaka, Hiroshima, Fukushima and other cities they will also register their protest. We have a poster campaign. So people will again pose with the poster and send it to Shinzo Abe and the Indian Prime Minister. In India, when PM Shinzo Abe comes on December 12th and 13th, we would have massive protest in several cities in India and places like Kudankulam, Jaitapur, Kovada, Mithivizdi. Uh, these are name of the places where uh, new reactor projects are coming up with the Japanese and American connection. So farmers and fisher folk will protest at the grassroots and in cities, a concerned citizens group and individual will come together to protest. This time we are going to stage massive protests. We would have protests from Bhopal as well. Bhopal is so far the biggest chemical uh, industry accident in India. And, it, and the Indian government is still not able to address the problems of uh, people in Bhopal. So they would also come and uh, organize a protest against the India-Japan nuclear agreement. My understanding is that after Bhopal, which was a horrible industrial gas leak, it was an arsenic-based gas that got leaked from a Union Carbide plant and ended up exposing more than half a million people, killing over 8,000 people, that there was a law passed in India that 
corporations were responsible if there was a malfunction of their equipment and a disaster happened as a result, that they would bear the financial responsibility for this and that that was a stumbling block in an earlier iteration of the agreement between Japan and India because the Japanese companies, the nuclear companies, did not want to take financial responsibility because they never do. Is that still yes. in effect or has they, have they figured out a way around that? Yeah, that's a very important question. And uh, that uh, domestic law of India, although we find it very, very diluted, and it has only a very limited right of recourse against uh, suppliers, but even that is not acceptable to the uh, nuclear corporation and not only Japan. Also, companies like GE and Westinghouse from US and Areva from uh, France and Atomstroy Export from Russia, they have all been bitterly opposed to the Indian nuclear liability law, which places at least some limited scope of holding nuclear suppliers liable. And they have been strongly opposed to this. So even in the course of India-Japan nuclear agreement, that's a sticking point. But the Indian government has assured the Japanese side and it assured uh, President Obama when he came to India earlier this year. It's really bizarre. It's bizarre because the Indian government itself, using public money, has established an insurance pool where the uh, nuclear investors can channel their liability. So essentially, although the law provides that the foreign supplier should be liable, the Indian government ironically is ready to undermine its own law, go out of its way to establish the insurance pool funded by Indian people's money, of course, to provide effectively liability-free playing field for uh, global corporations. So it's an ironic situation, situation. And we in India have been thinking of taking this insurance route to the court and opposing it politically because it's totally unacceptable. It undermines Indian law, a law which was enacted by the parliament, a law which reflected the whole experience of people of Bhopal and the realities of India. So although technically in India-Japan agreement, they seem to have found a roundabout way to get away from liability, but the issue still remains and it's an issue on which we will continue to fight. Given that you're going to be doing these protests in India, and again, this is a David and Goliath battle. I like to remind people that David won. Given that you're going to be out there and protesting en masse, What is the best possible result you think is possible as a result of these actions? I think India-Japan agreement must be stopped because in Japan, all these people everywhere I went, they say that Fukushima is nowhere under control. It's an ongoing disaster. It's not stopped. And in a situation like this, Shinzo Abe is totally unjustified to sell nuclear to India and other countries. So it must be stopped. And the minimum, the minimum, even if this agreement goes ahead, the minimum which it must include is one, it should ensure absolute and complete liability for the uh, suppliers. B, it should include no test clause because this should be used as an opportunity to take a promise, to take a pledge from India that it will not conduct further nuclear tests. The uh, sensitive technologies like reprocessing should not be transferred. They undermine the non-proliferation concerns. And also all these suppliers should at least bare minimum 
moral responsibility should be that they make sure that if they supply these reactors and the uranium fuel to india they are not these reactors are not set up by undermining the environmental law and repressing people and evicting them without compensation and uh, all these attendant issues so we would insist that even if you are pro nuclear this is not a way to go ahead with your nuclear plants you can't uh, just evict people you can't just undermine all the environmental and human right laws to have your way so the very minimum the very minimum, minimum which should be asked from these companies is that they obey the nuclear liability law they respect the minimum basic human rights of the people there they have a open consultation with the community and they respect the environmental norms that are required to set up nuclear power plants kumar you okay. are doing such remarkable work for your people in india for the people in japan and really for all of us around the world is there any final thought you would like to leave us with or anything you would like to add at this time apart from the protest that we are organizing in india and japan we would also be floating an international petition so through your platform i would urge people all over the world to support our campaign against the india japan agreement uh, the petition will be online very soon so i would request their support to sign it and spread it as much as possible and to write letters to japanese embassies and then to join anti nuclear solidarity wherever possible so these are things which people can do and they will help us immensely get the contact information to me get me the links when they're ready and they will be up on nuclear hot seat and i will share it with the listening audience i know you have taken time out of your schedule and you're a little late now getting back to the world nuclear victims forum so for now i want to thank you so much for taking this time and being my guest again this week on nuclear hot seat thank you so much it was always pleasure to it has been always pleasure to talk to you so thank you so much give him hell Just go back there and keep kicking ass Kumar. Safe journey. Thank you. Kumar Sundaram, a research consultant with the Coalition for Nuclear Disarmament and Peace. He joined us via Skype from Hiroshima in Japan. When that petition is available for signature, we will have a link to it up on our website nuclearhotseat.com under this episode number 231. We'll have our second interview in just a moment, but first, Nuclear Hot Seat is grateful for the loving support it has received from so many of you over the past year. You've helped us meet our financial obligations for the website reconstruction, which was the really big hit that we took this year. And your words of encouragement help keep me going in a very important way. We continue to have monthly charges related to the website as well as travel expenses to bring you the best possible coverage of the stories. So to help support the ongoing work, go to nuclearhotseat.com and click on the big red donate button. You can donate either through PayPal or directly from your credit or debit card. And if you prefer to not donate online, Email me at info@nuclearhotseat.com at for a snail mail address where you can send your donation the old-fashioned way. Whatever you can do to help. Thank you and gratitude this holiday season for all you have done to support the work. Vicky Nelson lives in Hawaii and went to Fukushima in 2012 to invite those living in the radiation to come to Hawaii to as she put it, breathe fresh air. swim in the ocean 
and eat good food. That's how she started the nonprofit Fukushima Friends Incorporated, a program that puts Fukushima radiation refugees in people's homes in Hawaii for a stay of up to three months or longer if visas can be managed. Vicky joined us via Skype from the Big Island of Hawaii, along with one of her homestay guests, Tokiko Noguchi, who was visiting from Fukushima with her 10-year-old son. The interpreter pressed into service for this interview, Kea Uahara, is a volunteer from a local school, and he did a terrific job on short notice, despite not being trained as an interpreter or being familiar with nuclear issues. It was quite a crash course for him. This interview originally aired on Nuclear Hot Seat number 207 on June 9, 2015. Vicki Nelson has been a follower of Nuclear Hot Seat for several years. And when she let me know last week through a little Facebook exchange that we did what she's been doing to help the women and children of Fukushima, I insisted that she talk to me on the record. Vicki went to Fukushima in 2012 to offer flowers from Hawaii intended to cheer people up, as well as provide an invitation to those living in the radiation zone to come visit her home in Hawaii where they could breathe fresh air, swim in the ocean, and eat good food. That's how she started the nonprofit Fukushima Friends Incorporated, a program that puts Fukushima radiation refugees in people's homes for a stay of up to three months or longer if the visas can be managed. She joined us via Skype from the Big Island of Hawaii, along with one of her homestay guests, Tokiko Noguchi, visiting from Fukushima with her 10-year-old son. The interpreter pressed into service for this interview, Kea Uehara, is a volunteer from a local school, and he did a terrific job on short notice despite not being trained as an interpreter or being familiar with nuclear issues. We all spoke together last week. Vicki Nelson and Tokiko Noguchi, thank you so much for being my guests on Nuclear Hot Seat. Yes, thank you very much for having us join you today. Appreciate it. Vicki, you live in Hawaii. When and how did you become active in Fukushima-related issues? Uh, after the disaster, I had been speaking with a friend of mine, Yumiko Khan, and asking her how I could help, uh, what there were needs for, and I didn't hear from her for a while. I think it was just so much trauma. We weren't sure what we could do. Uh, we're just two women and little resources, and we just talked about it over the phone and prayed about it over the Skype. And then one day she asked me to come over for a sunflower day, which was being held in Fukushima to cheer people up. It provided clothing and food and a way for people to get out. And uh, she asked me to bring flowers from Hawaii. How long after the disaster began on March 11 of 2011 did this take place? in December 2012. So about a year and a half, maybe a little bit more than that afterwards. Yeah. What was that experience like for you and what did that lead to? Well, when I arrived, we had this event and the radiation started to affect me right away. My eyes started to burn and my throat started to hurt and 
I felt some pain a little bit in my chest on the left side. So I didn't say too much because I was trying to encourage other people. But then I, my friend Yumiko said, you look like you have a rash on the top of your head. And I believe uh, that was one of the first symptoms also that I was experiencing radiation contact. And then we went to various places for people with disabilities, all of their um, shelters where the people have been taken and just provided these small little constructions to live in. And we were trying to encourage them with flowers from Hawaii and and cheering with songs and trying to encourage people so that they could see a face from Hawaii and have hope that maybe they would be able to come to Hawaii and find a respite to get out of their troubles, to get out of the radiation. And uh, so we, we traveled for 10 days straight, every day, very hard, very busy in uh, facilities with people with disabilities and went to the ocean and saw where the disaster came. And we actually, we went as close as the government is allowing people to go, which is very, very, very close. And the guards were yelling at us, oh, get out of here, you know. And uh, we actually, none of us should have been allowed in that area. It was extremely high, uh, 0.9, I think, in one place. And we just didn't know how much danger we were in, but at the same time we went and we saw we were at Minamisoma and and various places along the shoreline to see the disaster that came through and took people's lives away. Tokiko, where are you from in Japan and what happened for you both on 311-11 and in the immediate aftermath? I live in Fukushima, Japan. So I'm pretty sure the tsunami didn't hit there. She only had the effects of the tsunami and a little bit of the earthquake. So she was only worrying about the tsunami maybe coming to her place, but she didn't know about the radiation yet. Until March 12th, she actually didn't even know there were nuclear power plants in Fukushima. She learned about the word radiation on the 12th because she didn't know about it before that. And on the 15th, she left Fukushima. Where did you go when you left Fukushima? She went to Iwate-ken, which is north of Fukushima. And were you by yourself or were there family members with you? She was with her husband, her 12-year-old daughter, and her 7-year-old son, and they all moved together. Where did you go, and what did you face when you were in the place you evacuated to? So what actually happened was they didn't move, per se, but they kind of got away for a little bit. And her daughter actually didn't want to switch schools, so they went back after a month. And are you currently living in Fukushima? Yes, they live in the same place now. What has been the hardest thing for you and your children to face since the accident began? What is uh, A2 count? Yeah, actually. A, A1, A2, B, C. Ah, no. ah, ah, I know about that. I know about that. <laughs> uh, my daughter, my son, 
A2. That's the thyroid test that shows that there are nodules of a particular size on the thyroid. So both your son and your daughter have these gross, these nodules on their thyroid. It didn't get large, but they were just... They had a lot of them, though, apparently. Just that they didn't really get big. And that's apparently what the A2 result means. Yes, that refers to the size, but the fact that there were a lot of them is also significant. It's important to know. What about yourself and your husband? Have you had difficulties with your thyroids or any other part of your health? The husband actually didn't test, but she tested and there was just one small one. And how long ago was that? She checks every year and and that was the result for the most recent one. So, Vicky, let's take this back to you now. How did you and Tokiko meet and what has been your involvement? Okay, my friend Yumiko Khan, who lives in Japan, and she and I, uh, originally we started to know each other because she works with people with disabilities and so do I. Our business has uh, people working in flowers and foliage in Hawaii, and she is a horticulture therapist and trying to help people find jobs or job training or trying to give them a better life through healing of plants, healing with plants. And so she and I met years ago, and then, as I mentioned, when the disaster happened, I kept asking her, what can I do? I don't know what to do. And so uh, she has gone throughout Japan, various people that she knows, various churches that she knows, um, speaking to them, asking for children or for people with disabilities if they would like to come to Hawaii, because I told her that I would open my home to anybody who wanted to come and get out of the radiation. And I I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I just said, let's just do it. Just send them here. And uh, so she originally got a loan, a private loan, under her own name. And we didn't have a, we don't still have a nonprofit title for it, but... We ended up with money enough to send some people here and help pay for their airfare. And then once they were here, I just put it together myself and uh, used a lot of credit cards and <laughs> asked a lot of people to volunteer help and provide food or or gas or whatever. But it's been slow in the making because of the trust level of, you know, people coming to some place that they don't know. I'm not a regular tour company. I'm just a mom, and we have a, a home that's open for them to come and experience some time of respite and eat different food. And what we've been experiencing also is that every single person that, that comes has a reaction to the change as soon as they come here. There's been people who have vomited. They've been having nosebleeds. They've been dizzy. uh, They've been very ashen in color. And this is once they have left Japan. In other words, it is the lack of the radiation that allows them to then have these reactions to... It's, It's like it's expelling from their body. There's diarrhea. There's nosebleeds. Almost every single person has had uh, nosebleeds on their pillow, you know, I find blood. And then they don't want to tell me that they have these reactions. You know, they're embarrassed. Vomiting, uh, Tokiko's son vomited the whole first week practically and 
diarrhea and we actually took him to the hospital because we felt that he was dehydrated and they did run tests and they said yes he was dehydrated so he was kept overnight at the Hilo hospital in uh, on the big island and cared for everybody just adored him he's just the cutest little 10 year old that you ever saw he has down syndrome Tokiko how did you become involved with Vicky and with Fukushima friends? Again, from Yumiko Khan, Vicky's friend. So because Tokiko was staying at Fukushima, Yumiko found her and told her that she should move out. Tokiko actually borrowed a house in Okinawa, which is rather safe, for one year. But she actually went there once. So she didn't get to move out, I guess. Yeah. So Yumiko offered should do detox camps. And this detox would be with Fukushima friends in Hawaii? Yes. What does the program consist of when people come over from Japan, and what does it do for them? Well, right now, we're really grassroots. I'm just a mom. I'm not a professional medical doctor or a psychologist or psychiatrist. But we just offer love and kindness and a bed and fresh air and grass to run and play and swings to swing on. And I I have 13 grandchildren, so they can run around with their grandchildren when they come over. And uh, we go to the ocean and take in a lot of uh, picnics and just uh, enjoy some kind of fun and get the troubles out of your mind and meet people here in Hawaii. Um, One of the things I'm really involved with uh, is Christian uh, fellowship with other people, and they've been opening their arms and opening their homes to help out. And so we are are sharing with people and asking them to provide homestays. And then um, also every day we have a Bible study, and just trying to help everybody understand who God is, that he is a loving father of us all. And if someone isn't Christian, can they still participate in the program? Is there any limitation? No, there's no limitation at all. But the understanding is that we explain before they come that they will have opportunity if they desire to go to church or to meet people who do go to church and that we are all over the community, all over the island doing things. So they're meeting lots of variety of people and sharing in music and dance and anything that anybody provides on the island. I go through the calendar of events that maybe hula is available, you know, maybe uh, singing is available, uh, whatever. So that's not based on Christianity, but that is the underlying mission of my heart is that I share God's love with everybody. Mm-hmm. How long do people come for when they come to be part of this program? What is the average stay? Well, right now, uh, Bintaro has been here three months, and that's the maximum for the visa currently. We're hoping that we can establish some sort of job training program that's fun and job experiences for anybody because under a job training program we understand that the uh, visa can be under like a year extension of time and uh, 
what we're trying to do, uh, we have some land. Unfortunately, it needs to be purchased and sold because we do have a mortgage. But we have land, so we're looking for hopeful people that would invest in Fukushima. And we were, my husband said he'd be happy to try and build homes on the land for them to come. And then they're not necessarily in a program. They have freedom to do what they want, rent cars or whatever they'd like to do. But at the moment... We're just a simple family that's opening our doors. So I don't have everything put together perfectly, but sometimes they've come six weeks, two weeks, four weeks, just depending on what they can afford to take away from their life over in Japan. I'd like them never to go back. (laughs) That would be nice if it can be accomplished. When you say you help people detox from radiation, other than getting out of that immediate environment at Fukushima, are there any programs, are there any protocols that you have them follow to assist them in getting the radiation out of their bodies? At the moment, we're not really doing a huge part of that, but we do have in the works people who grow organically here who will supply the vegetables and the fruit. And of course, Hawaii is plentiful of that, but I'm not a very good cook, so (laughs) I'm not focused on that really, but that's exactly what we need. And so we've asked for people to come forward to try to help us. You know, this is in many ways similar to a program called Komoro Homestay that was put together by Laura and Gichi Inoue in Japan, which allows for Fukushima mothers and their children to get away at least for three or four weeks at a time. And I'm wondering, have you had any contact with any other groups or any other individuals who are providing homestay opportunities? Yumiko's doing that because I don't speak Japanese. Uh, She's been the one who's doing the resourcing over there. And I know that she's got many, many places, but I haven't heard of that one particularly. In closing, Tokiko, is there anything you want to say to the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat? Please help protect the kids. Thank you very much, is what she said. And if people want to learn more about the Fukushima Friends program or learn about how this structure of providing homestay is proceeding, is there a website they can visit? Yes, it's called loveneverfailsjapan.com and you can donate or you can contact us by email fukushimafriends at gmail.com Tokiko, safe journey to you Are you returning to Fukushima in the near future with your son, or will you be able to stay in Hawaii now? This Friday, they're going to actually just go back to Fukushima. May you be able to find a place where you and your family can be safe from the radiation, or as safe as possible. Thank you. Kokiko has a website of her work that she's doing in helping children to find respite. It's called AAA3A.jp. And she has about 150 mothers in Japan who are monitoring the community and they provide this information on a blog. And they are all interested in the health and safety and welfare 
of the children of Fukushima that are still residing there for one reason or another. And she's also uh, made contact with people in Australia yeah. and in Italy yeah. and Hokkaido and Okinawa, various different places that they are providing respite for the children and the families. She just wants the children to have a bright future and be protected so that we can have that future. Amen to that. That was Vicki Nelson of Fukushima Friends and Tokiko Noguchi, one of her guests at the program. This was done through interpreter Keia Uehara. Activist shout-out and final thought all in one. My gratitude across the board for all the brave, dedicated activists across the country and around the world who give their time, energy, blood, sweat, toil, and tears to fight against nuclear technology in all of its deadly forms. My special respect to the moms and families around the Westlake Landfill and Coldwater Creek in North St. Louis who have entered this fight without their consent and beyond their imagining. We are all doing what we can, as we can, how we can. And I'll have more on that next week. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 24, 2015. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompanied by John Barnard, and recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV, on StuWebRadioNetwork.com, formerly the Veterans Truth Network, and as of this week, we welcome the New Zealand-based news aggregator NewsSentinel.com. That's NewsZSentinel.com. It's the latest in the syndication family for Nuclear Hot Seat, and we're looking forward to gathering many more aggregators and syndicators in the coming year. The show is also available on iTunes under podcasts, and the archive is available on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com, on our YouTube channel under Nuclear Hot Seat Videos, and on iTunes. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2015, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. Going out on something positive this week, the song Visualize from the musical Armageddon, The Living End, a positive look at the end of the world. Music by Grady, lyric by me. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Can I visualize? I see a world where love never dies. And the beauty I feel is real visualize. When I visualize, I see a truth that conquers the
Let's go.